From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. And a gathering around a fire would have been a particularly good idea these last few nights. I must say, we put a nice dent in our woodpile this past weekend. I'm coming to you from my little studio beneath the stairs tonight. And uh, Owen Wolf, my technical producer, is behind the big audio board at Zoomerplex. Ryan White is my live stream producer, and he's safe and warm in a, in a secure location as well. And uh, we are live streaming up at the YouTube channel Strange Planet. Coming up in hour one, Dylan Howard is the author of a new book, a full and unedited story behind the sick life and mysterious death of Jeffrey Epstein. It's being called one of the most significant scandals in American history. The book, Dead Men Tell No Tales, Spies, Lies, and Blackmail. In Hour 2, a few months ago, I introduced you to Chris Burris. He's an engineer who confirmed findings on Carbon-60, a Nobel Prize-winning technology originally meant for military defense and now being sought out by global mega corporations. He joins us again for a few updates on what many are calling a miracle molecule, Carbon-60. We'll also be joined in hour two by Patty Greer, crop circle researcher, filmmaker, who's been taking the consumable form of carbon-60 known as ESS-60. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't already, please take a moment, subscribe to my free monthly newsletter. It's very simple. Inner Sanctum. Uh, go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, and register your name and email. That's it. And then you'll start receiving the monthly newsletter. Free every month. Again, it's called Inner Sanctum, and you'll automatically be entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet gear. Again, just go to strangeplanet.ca and register your name and email, strangeplanet.ca. He was the billionaire financier and close confidant of presidents, prime ministers, movie stars, and British royalty the mysterious self-made man who rose from blue-collar Brooklyn to the heights of luxury. But while he was flying around the world on his private jet and hosting lavish parties at his private island in the Caribbean, he also was secretly masterminding an international child sex ring, one that may have involved the richest and most influential men in the world. The conspiracy of corruption was an open secret for decades, and then, this past summer, it all came crashing down. After his arrest on sex trafficking charges in July of this year, it seemed Epstein's darkest secrets would finally see the light. But hopes for true justice were shattered on August 10th of this year when he was found dead in his cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in Manhattan. The verdict? Suicide. The timing? Convenient, to say the least. As a man with unprecedented access to the facts and a reporter who is one of the most feared journalists in Hollywood, investigative reporter Dylan Howard has cracked open scandals that have brought down the careers of Mel Gibson, Charlie Sheen, Hulk Hogan, and Paula Deen, among others. 
His sense for news saw him rise to become the undisputed most powerful gossip editor in the world, publishing dozens of salacious tabloid magazines each week, including U.S., Weekly, The National Enquirer, Star, In Touch, Life and Style, RadarOnline.com, and more. His new book is Dead Men Tell No Tales, Lies, Spies, and Blackmail uh, with Melissa Cronin and James Robertson. Dylan Howard, welcome aboard. How are you? It's good to be with you. Thank you for your time. If we could, let's begin at the end. August 10th, take us to the the federal jail cell at Manhattan's Metro Correctional Center. Just kind of lay out the crime scene, if you would. Well, it was a systematic cover-up and conspiracy of epic proportions. The reality is that Jeffrey Epstein had attempted to commit suicide two weeks prior. By its very nature, an inmate, regardless of whether you are Jeffrey Epstein or anyone else for that matter, you do not return into regular prison population and be given a cell with the means and the opportunity to commit suicide, i.e., you are not given bed sheets. And that is exactly what happened in the case of Jeffrey Epstein. For anyone that thinks that his suicide was a suicide of his own volition, they're kidding themselves. The charade must stop right now. The reality is Jeffrey Epstein wasn't murdered. That I believe. I believe he did commit suicide, but I would classify it as an assisted suicide, i.e. there was a large conspiracy behind allowing him back into regular prison population and giving him the means, motives and objective to take his own life. Now, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, of course, has ruled it uh, suicide by hanging. But talk to me about the forensic pathologist who observed the autopsy on behalf of Epstein's brother, Dr. Michael Baden. Mm-hmm. What are his concerns? Well, he's a former New York City medical examiner himself. By the very nature of an autopsy, it is a subjective exercise. It is the opinion of one individual. Now, Michael Baden vehemently disagrees with the New York City medical examiner by virtue of the fact that there are three uh, sections of the bone that ultimately resulted in Jeffrey Epstein dying that he says suggests is murder, that someone deliberately hanged him. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. There is evidence to suggest that three breaks of the bone that Baden describes has occurred in a suicide before. There is one particular thing that worries me about the autopsy and looking at that, and it is the scarring under his eye and above his mouth and to the right of his nose, which would suggest that there might, and I emphasize the word, might be some form of struggle But I don't think there is any empirical evidence at this point to suggest that there was anyone else inside that prison cell on the night in question. But there is no doubt in my mind that he was a man who knew too much. People wanted him silenced. 
and that he was given the means, motive, and objective to kill himself on that fateful night in question. Dylan Howard, my guest, and uh, the book is Dead Men Tell No Tales, Lies, Spies, and Blackmail. Just a few more questions relating to his death, and then we'll delve into who Jeffrey Epstein really was. There are reports that Epstein, while he was in prison, was directing money to other inmates, I guess their commissary accounts, in exchange for protection. In other words, he feared for his life. Any justification or any validity to those reports? Not uncommon for a high-profile inmate at any prison. I have been in a number of prisons, far too many that I care to admit to, not for any crimes of my own wrongdoing, but for interviewing inmates. And anyone that comes into a correctional facility by virtue of their crime and their high-profile nature must conform to prison rules. And they are a separate set of rules to regular society. So I can understand why Jeffrey Epstein would want to protect himself, why he would spend money and funnel money into the prison to protect himself. This was a man that had a target the size of the Empire State Building on his back by virtue of the fact of the notoriety that he had. When you consider that he was a paedophile, that only exponentially makes it worse. And those types of criminals are viewed as the heinous individuals that they are by fellow inmates. When you say that he was aided and abetted in his suicide, would that or could that include the guards that were supposed to be keeping watch over him that were now told were either sleeping or surfing the Internet, were also told that the certain security cameras were not operating? Is that, in your estimation, part of the aiding and abetting of Epstein's suicide? That I don't, I don't know, but what I can tell you is that the Department of Justice has charged two individuals with essentially the derelict of duty in the sense that they were tasked with operating the prison under certain circumstances, and they did not. They fell asleep on the job. Now, I ask this of your listeners. Does the following set of circumstances pass the very basic smell test? One, you attempt to commit suicide, you're released back into prison population two weeks thereafter. The video camera of said suicide attempt is corrupted. You don't interview the fellow inmate who is in the cell. When he tries and ultimately does commit suicide, the cameras are switched off. Five, the guards don't do their regular examination of a handful of cells within that uh, ward of the correctional facility. And six, that bed sheets and even an electrical appliance with an electrical cord is placed in one cell. Stop the charade. This makes zero sense whatsoever. Dylan, you've been covering this case for 
eight years, maybe a, a decade. Obviously, as you point out in your book, it was a difficult story to really pursue and investigate while he was alive. But after his arrest in July, were you thinking he'll never testify, he'll never sit in the witness stand, this won't be allowed to happen? No, I believed that narcissistic sociopathic individuals never, ever take their lives. I fully anticipated that Jeffrey Epstein would attempt to try and win this case on the very nature of the fact that he was presenting a legal argument that on its prima facie basis was a very strong one, that this was a case of double jeopardy, that in 2006, the federal government could have chosen to prosecute Jeffrey Epstein with sex trafficking crimes after accumulating some 32 to 36 victims. Instead, they handed it over to local law enforcement, made it a state case, and he was charged with one case of soliciting a prostitute and sex trafficking and was given what's been described as the sweetheart deal of the century. So I believe, had it have gone to trial, Jeffrey Epstein and his legal team would have had a very strong case in arguing that this was a case of double jeopardy, i.e. you are trying the same case that you had an opportunity to try in 2006. And they would have honed in on the federal government and said, why did you hand this over to local law enforcement? And we know that Donald Trump's former Labor Secretary, Alex Acosta, who was then overseeing the local branch of law enforcement, had said that he was told, this is above your pay grade, to paraphrase, and hands off. So I genuinely believe that Jeffrey Epstein believed that he would be successful in a court of law. And that's consistent with the testimony of his lawyers who have said that he was upbeat in the days before his death. So then what changed? I think that ultimately comes to the notion that there was a suicide that was aided and abetted by individuals who may have put pressure on him, who may have threatened him, who may have said, you're going to die, whether it's today or tomorrow or in three weeks. But this was a man who knew too much for a variety of reasons. And at the very crux of Epstein, Dead Men Tell No Tale, is a stark revelation and one that has been overlooked by the mainstream media, perhaps conveniently. The reality is that Jeffrey Epstein was not only a controlling, vindictive and heinous paedophile, perhaps the world's worst paedophile, who trafficked young women, whose role in this should not be diminished in any capacity. The reality, though, was that he was operating a very classic intelligence operation, the classic honey trap, whereby everything that he exchanged with individuals inside the four walls of his estates 
all around the world, was recorded and sent to a foreign government. And that foreign government was Israel, and he was an agent of its equivalent of the CIA, the Mossad. And as conspiratorial as that may well sound, let me tell you this. Let me put the pieces of the jigsaw together. Jeffrey Epstein was rubbing shoulders with the likes of Adnan Khashoggi, a noted arms dealer who worked for Saudi Arabia, who died in the 1990s, I believe. He admitted to being a bounty hunter for arms dealers. His connections to the Maxwell family dated back to the 1980s. In 1989, Robert Maxwell, a British press tycoon who owned the Mirror News Group, was a well-known Mossad operative who would use his power and influence, the influence that he would use to rub shoulders with the rich and famous, to gather information for the purposes of benefiting the Israeli establishment. Now, in our book, we speak to Ari Ben-Mashani. And Ari Ben-Mashani is a former Mossad spy handler, the person who was the individual who would gather this information and pass it back on to the intelligence operation. He was Robert Maxwell's spy handler. He ultimately became Jeffrey Epstein's spy handler. But who is the third individual that connects these two individuals together? Ghislaine Maxwell. The woman that it is long established was Jeffrey Epstein's former girlfriend and the woman who is alleged to have procured these young underage women for Jeffrey Epstein, a claim, of course, that she has denied. She seemingly is on the run from justice perhaps even a fugitive. But she was the daughter of Robert Maxwell, and according to Ari Ben-Mashani, the business of spying was turned over in the late 1980s from Robert Maxwell to his daughter Ghislaine and her boyfriend, Jeffrey Epstein. Dylan Howard, my guest, and uh, he is the author of Dead Man Tell No Tales, Lies, Spies, and blackmail, along with Melissa Cronin and James Robertson. When we talk about Jeffrey Epstein being a billionaire, this mythology, or perhaps it's not, I don't know, you can disabuse me of this, but the idea that he made his billions as a hedge fund manager or some sort of financier, is that a myth? Did he begin as a financier, or did he make all of his money essentially as a blackmail artist? No, he did begin his career as a individual who worked on Wall Street. He worked at Bear Stearns. The circumstances surrounding his exit from Bear Stearns is controversial. People I speak to accuse him of insider trading. He then left a company called Bear Stearns to work for a company called Towers Financial. Now, Towers Financial was the largest Ponzi scheme in American history prior to Bernie Madoff. And the chief proponent of that Ponzi scheme, Stephen Hoffenberg, was charged and spent 18 years 
in jail for his crimes. He's since been released. But his number two was Jeffrey Epstein. How much time did Jeffrey Epstein serve for being part of the Ponzi scheme? Zero. Why? I have a theory on that. Okay, I've got to take a, a quick time out. We'll come back. I'll get to your theory on uh, why Jeffrey Epstein did no time for the uh, all these shenanigans on Wall Street. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in a moment. Stay with us. There's smoke. There's the conspiracy show with Richard Serra. And we are back with Dylan Howard and the book. The explosive book is Dead Men Tell No Tales, Lies, Spies and Blackmail, along with Melissa Cronin and James Robertson. Before the break, uh, Dylan, we were talking about Jeffrey Epstein's time at Bear Stearns involved in this Ponzi scheme for which he did no time while others around him were prosecuted. What happened? How was he protected? I believe that he was protected by the highest levels of the government. And I believe he was done so for a reason. Israel is a simpatico country to the United States. And I believe passionately, based on the evidence and research that I have conducted, that the U.S. government knew that Jeffrey Epstein was a spy. And it was ultimately hands-off. And that is what Alex Acosta alluded to when he said he was effectively told to leave the case alone. And you must ask yourself this. Jeffrey Epstein got the sweetheart plea deal of a century. Before that, he was offered an even sweeter plea deal that would have closed down the grand jury and he would not have served a day in prison. He chose not to accept it. I believe because he thought he didn't have to plea to anything that because there's a spy for a country that we are effectively in bed with that he would be protected. So upon his exit from prison in 2010, one must ask themselves why in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 and half of 2019 did the federal government not decide to bring its case against Jeffrey Epstein. What we know now is that the House Democrats have sought through subpoena government records at both state and federal level believing that they could perhaps weaponize the Epstein case to go after President Donald Trump or indeed the Republican Party. But be careful what you wish for because in 2012 through to 2018, it was a democratically elected government with Barack Obama as the the president and the likes of Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and her husband, Bill, was at the time rubbing shoulders with none other than Jeffrey Epstein. 
Now, I'm not suggesting for one minute that Bill Clinton was involved in the sexual kind of peccadilloes that Jeffrey Epstein was. But I can assure you this. They were talking about issues of relevance to the United States, its position on foreign issues, its own internal issues, issues of science and technology innovation, all of which are paramount importance, not just to Israel, but to other foreign countries as well. And Jeffrey Epstein was um, rubbing shoulders, not only with Bill Clinton, but he was rubbing shoulders with leaders in the science world and technology world, like Bill Gates, Steven Pinker, and more Nobel Prize winners. And this wasn't about sex. This was about information gathering. You mentioned Bill Clinton. Much has been made of the flight manifest that shows he took a number of passages on the, uh, the infamous Lolita Express. I've heard up to 23 were any of those flights on which Bill Clinton was aboard, were any of those flights to Lolita Island? Based on the manifest, no. I believe Bill Clinton flew as many as 28 times on that jet. And he, like others, has sought to minimize his connection to Epstein. I think a thorough examination of the establishment of the Clinton Foundation and its connections to those within Jeffrey Epstein's web ought to be conducted. I believe that there are nefarious connections there. And like others, as I said, Clinton has sought to uh, minimise his establishment with Jeffrey Epstein, as has Bill Gates and as has Prince Andrew. On the case of Prince Andrew, it's very different to that as some of the other individuals. We, of course, know the photo where he has his arm around Virginia uh, Guilfrey, the seemingly uh, most prominent victim of Epstein. He, in that train wreck interview with the BBC, denied meeting her. We establish in our book that he actually spent more time with Epstein than he's admitted to, including making a trip to the infamous Zorro Ranch in New Mexico. But I have to ask you this question. Someone of Prince Andrew's calibre doesn't travel without a royal security detail. How did they not know that Prince Andrew was involved in the activities that he was. He can say that he wasn't, but as I like to say often, don't BS a BSer. I think the bona fides of Virginia Guilfrey Roberts are well established. So the British government, by virtue of traveling with Prince Andrew during the times that he was rubbing shoulders with Jeffrey Epstein, knew just how vulnerable Prince Andrew would be if indeed Jeffrey Epstein was establishing what the Russians call as compromise. 
damaging information on high-profile individuals. And that is exactly what took place. So serious questions need to be asked now of the British monarchy and what they knew and whether they covered up Prince Andrew's connection with Jeffrey Epstein prior to the mainstream media coverage of it. To what extent was Prince Andrew used to help insinuate Jeffrey Epstein into the New York social scene? In other words, was he used as bait, Prince Andrew, that is? I think they were all used as bait. There is no doubt about that. I mean, here is a guy who was released from prison, and no sooner than two years thereafter, he's hosting the likes of George Stephanopoulos from ABC News and a former Clinton operative, Katie Couric, and other rich and famous Hollywood individuals like Harvey Weinstein. These people were very complicit in rubbing shoulders with him. Why? Because he was able to ingratiate himself back into society without any black eyes. It's frightening to think that that occurred. But what's more concerning is who is involved in the cover-up. So you've got to think about it this way. We've established that the U.S. government knew that Jeffrey Epstein was a spy. The Israelis knew that Jeffrey Epstein was a spy because he worked for them. The British monarchy knew that Prince Andrew was compromised and likely deduced that Prince Andrew's friend Jeffrey Epstein was a spy. He also had connections to, as I mentioned earlier, Adnan Khashoggi an arms dealer for Saudi Arabia. So the subterfuge that existed between this complex web is amazing. All of these countries knew how reckless and dangerous and vulnerable Jeffrey Epstein was. And by people hanging out with him and rubbing shoulders with him, those people were at risk. But the question has to be asked, why did they allow it to happen? Is it because he'd already gathered that compromising information on these key individuals? Or were they scared of him? All right, uh, Dylan, we'll take another quick time out, come back and continue to delve into the sick life and mysterious death of Jeffrey Epstein, Dylan Howard, my guest, the author of Dead Men Tell No Tales, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Strap yourself in. You're about to leave everything you thought you knew behind. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in hour two, Chris Burris, the uh, co-founder, scientist with C60Evo.com. And we'll be talking about uh, Carbon 60, along with uh, Crop Circle filmmaker Patty Greer. Uh, right now, Dylan Howard stays with us, and the book is Dead Men Tell No Tales, Lies, Spies, and Blackmail, uh, with Melissa Cronin and James Robertson. Uh, I'm trying to imagine, you know, how... a, a 
extensively a book like this, uh, Dylan, would have to be lawyered. Uh, can you just sort of give us a sense of that process? I mean, it must be just uh, they, they must have had to gone through have gone through this letter by letter. Absolutely. I mean, a book like this does not go to print without thorough examination from the lawyers. But you have to understand that we'd been working on this case for many, many years and had built up a collection of court filings. And indeed, at this very moment, we are involved in active litigation against the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act here in the United States to get the FBI's case file on Jeffrey Epstein. Now, normally, when someone dies, that information is automatically released. In the case of Jeffrey Epstein, information has been released, but the information that has been released is of inadequate value and almost embarrassing at the heavy nature of which the FBI redacted information, which, again, smacks of a cover-up. Um... Another critical component of this is that we know Jeffrey Epstein in every one of his mansions recorded what happened in every room. I'm one of the very few that have seen photos in at least two of those properties, New York and Palm Beach. And I've seen cameras in every corner of the room. Now, that all fed back into a central office And next to that office was another study where there were industrial-sized Xerox machines that printed out these blackmail files and audio tapes and saved all the information for the purposes of what Jeffrey Epstein was running. So I ask of the FBI, what is on those tapes? Where are they? Why have they not been released? I also asked that of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department, which prosecuted Jeffrey Epstein and the local DA, and why it hasn't released that cache of information. Now, Florida is a very unique state in the United States in the sense that anything in a criminal case is released under what's called the Sunshine Law. It's when uh, Casey Anthony was alleged to have killed her baby daughter, Kaylee. And every time her parents turned up to the jail, the video of them interacting was released. However, the local Florida authorities also have never released their files on Jeffrey Epstein. And in fact, a judge last week said that materials related to a civil case were not in the public interest. That, to me, doesn't also pass the smell test. As part of our investigation into Epstein, Dead Men Tell No Tales, we identified one particular detective that worked for the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department, an individual by the name of John Mark Dugan, who is now, believe it or not, living in Moscow, sought and obtained some form of immunity from the Russian government and he's living as an asylum seeker in that country. Now, he claims, and we have independently verified, 
that he has the local law enforcement cachet of evidence that Jeffrey Epstein stored. He says that it is on encrypted drives in Moscow. Now, one must assume if you are given asylum, you must exchange something of material value to that country. And whilst he won't admit it, my sources tell me that he handed over the compromising information and now the Kremlin has the files that the US government won't release to its own people, even under the law. That's a scary proposition. Fundamentally scary by its very nature. Who knows who's implicated in this scandal of the highest order? To think that it is in the grasp of the Kremlin is a frightening, frightening thought. That it could be used as leverage against the United States is appalling. It might be a shorter list to figure out who's not on the list. Indeed. We're going to step away. When we come back, I want to talk to you about Ghislaine Maxwell and uh, her likely whereabouts and what she may know and the likelihood of uh, bringing her to justice and getting to the bottom of this finally. Uh, we'll take a time out, come back. Dylan Howard stays with us, the author of Dead Men Tell No Tales, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Beaming across North America, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Dylan, any idea about the whereabouts of Ghislaine Maxwell? So there have been reports that Ghislaine is in the United States, traveling between safe house to safe house under the protection of retired Navy SEALs. I believe that was a plant in the UK media, just like the photo of her in Los Angeles was a plan easily disproved by the fact that one of the billboards in the background was carrying a out-of-date television or film show. I can't remember which one of the two. The reality is that Ghislaine Maxwell is ground zero for this case. She, by virtue of her relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, which was a very complex relationship, an ex-girlfriend turned alleged madam, uh, business operative, inherited and was bequeathed the intelligence files. So if Jeffrey Epstein was a man who knew too much, Kislaine Maxwell is the woman who knows too much. So I believe that she would well be under just the basic nature of intelligence operations being harbored by her spy masters, which would be Israel. So I would suspect no empirical evidence, and I'm happy to admit that this is a theory, but it makes logical sense that she would be in Israel being protected by the Mossad because she inherited the files that Maxwell and her accumulated over three decades. So essentially, she would be untouchable. Well, I think the Israeli government wants her to be untouchable, yes. If the person who was involved in the death of Jeffrey Epstein, and we all admit 
okay, was it murder or was it an assisted suicide aided and abetted by somebody? Regardless of the matter, I'm almost certain Jeffrey Epstein didn't make the decision to end his own life. So whoever wanted Jeffrey Epstein killed, inevitably, would want Ghislaine Maxwell killed. And her spy masters clearly don't want that um, and would be doing everything in their power to preserve her as an active asset, given what she knows. To what extent is Donald Trump involved? I mean, we know that uh, for a time they mm-hmm. they were friends. Uh, at some point, Trump learned something. There was a, a rupture in that relationship. Um I have also read that uh, lawyers for victims of Jeffrey Epstein have said that Trump was very helpful in giving them information when they requested it. What can you tell me about Trump's possible involvement? Like Bill Clinton, Bill Gates and others, Donald Trump has sought to minimize his relationship with Epstein. In the 1980s, Jeffrey Epstein was introduced to Donald Trump by virtue of Adnan Khashoggi. Adnan Khashoggi at that time had a super maxi yacht. And according to Donald Trump, his interactions with Jeffrey Epstein were confined and limited to their time at Mar-a-Lago, his estate in Palm Beach. That it never really happened until late 1990, early 2000. But the reality is that in 1980, Donald Trump was aboard Adnan Khashoggi's yacht when he met Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell, and uh, Jeffrey Epstein. So much so that Donald Trump purchased that yacht from Adnan Khashoggi and renamed it after his daughter, Ivanka, Lady Ivanka. And Robert Maxwell, of course, had a similar yacht that was called Lady Ghislaine. So I don't think that the President of the United States has been entirely truthful with his uh, admissions about his knowledge of Jeffrey Epstein or his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. That is not to say that that is nefarious or that he was involved in any of Epstein's sex trafficking. I just think that he has, like so many others sought to diminish the connection with him for fear of repercussions. When you took on an investigation like this, knowing now that it has the potential to bring down not only governments, presidents, prime ministers, a royal family, a dynasty, I mean, that must be, I mean, I know you're a, you're a hardened investigator and journalist, but still, that there must be a level of intimidation there, No. You know, I've not heard from anyone that has made any threat since the publication of the book. In fact, what I've heard from are a number of individuals who have stepped forward in the wake of the publication of this book with stunning information, information that I never expected to establish. And in fact, on the eve of publication of the book, I had a chance meeting with someone who I would describe as a whistleblower who was in Jeffrey's innermost circle and has effectively, in many ways, turned this story 
into a geopolitical thriller and has provided evidence to support this. Naturally, I, even going into the first book, believe that this was one of the biggest espionage scandals in American history. I don't believe we're being told the truth, the whole truth. I don't even think we're being told anything that is truthful. Naturally, when we have these personal papers and never-before-seen government files that have now been turned over to me by virtue of these people that have come forward who have uh, essentially said, I applaud you for exposing this. And I don't mean to sound gracious, but we have a sequel of the book coming out called Epstein Inc., how the U.S. government helped make spying and blackmail big business because our first book established a set of circumstances. Our second book dives well deeper to offer an unprecedented look into spy agencies, the government, and the deep state and how it really operates. And this sequel, in many ways, will blow the lid off corruption that I believe exists at the very highest level of the U.S. government. Is it fair to say that there are many Jeffrey Epsteins out there working on behalf of various spy masters from various countries around the world and that this is now how the game is being played at this level? And children, young children, are, uh, young girls are, and boys in some cases are being caught up yeah. in this horrible mess? That is, that is the great paradox of this case. We know that Jeffrey Epstein was an individual who exploited young women and was allowed to continue to exploit young women after his 2010 conviction. But whether or not he used those young women to advance his Mossad operations, I'm not necessarily sold on that. I think that it was the access that allowed him to establish the intelligence, that allowed him to operate as an agent for foreign intelligence for three decades. As I said earlier, talking to Bill Clinton was not about a young 13-year-old girl. It was at a time in which his wife was a U.S. Senator and Secretary of State. So the information that they would have been discussing was of critical importance to foreign intelligence agencies and foreign governments. So I still remain, um, to be completely frank and honest with you, perplexed as to whether or not Epstein was running this... Uh, sex trafficking ring for his own benefit or for the benefit of entrapping rich and influential men in the world. Nevertheless, the conspiracy of corruption was an open secret for decades. So it's a tricky proposition. I'm convinced either way. And I hope that my, my reporting, that my investigative work over the course of the next couple of weeks, we'll establish in more detail 
uh, just the role that sex trafficking played in this international espionage operation. Well, Dylan, we thank you for your time and uh, congratulations uh, on, on your work. The book, again, is Dead Men Tell No Tales, Lies, Spies and Blackmail. How do we get a copy of the book? You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all good booksellers, and anywhere that tells a great book. I hope you'll join us again, especially when the, uh, the sequel arrives. Anytime. I, I really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you, Dylan. All right, when we come back, Carbon 60, an update. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.